Jonah chapter 1. You have your Bible. Follow with me. This is a great, wonderful account of a very unique experience. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare thereof, and he went down unto it to go with them into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. One of the greatest sermons I ever heard was a, as a boy, and I still remember it. A great preacher pre- preached on the verse 3. I'm, this is just an aside. He paid the fare thereof, and he went down. What a thought. He paid the fare, and he went down. I know some people in my life, I've seen them pay the fare, and they went down after that. Well, go back to the text. But the Lord sent out a great wind onto the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was likely to be broken. Then the mariners or sailors were afraid, and they cried every man unto his God. And they cast forth the wares, or the, 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 the things that they were carrying on board, the cargo that was in the ship into the sea, to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down into the side of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the ship master, or the captain, came to him and said to him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise and call upon your God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. We need everybody on board to pray. And they said, Every one of them to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray you, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. And then were the people exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because Jonah had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto you? That the sea may be calm unto us, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So then the sea will be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring it to the land, and they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord, and they said, We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it hath pleased thee. And so they took Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the whale 
or the fish, the belly of the fish, three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Verse 9. He says, but I will sacrifice unto thee. This is a prayer that he's making now from the belly of this great fish. I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. And here's our text in the message today. Salvation is of the Lord. Say that with me. Salvation is of the Lord. Say it again. Salvation is of the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. You may be seated. Thank you. As the account has stated, Jonah was a Hebrew prophet who God had told him to go to Nineveh and to preach repentance unto them. And God says, if they will repent, I will spare that great city, that wicked, wicked city. In effect, Jonah was the first missionary, I think, that we find in the Bible. Because a missionary is one who is sent to preach the gospel to a people of a different culture. That's one of the common definitions we use. And Jonah was certainly preaching the gospel to a different culture as he went up to Nineveh. Nineveh was a large, large city, perhaps the largest city even in the ancient world at that time. It was the capital of the great Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were known for their cruelty. They had a scorched earth policy. Everywhere that the Assyrians went, with their armies as they conquered the ancient world, the Assyrians would kill everybody and burn and loot and plunder everything. They were known for their tremendous cruelty. And Jonah despised the people of Nineveh, as most of the people of that day would have. Jonah hated them. He didn't want to go and preach repentance. In fact, we find out later, he didn't even want God to save them. He felt like they deserved the wrath and the judgment of God. So he didn't want to be used of God to see them blessed and prospered. And so he went down and bought a ticket to a ship going the opposite direction. He first of all was supposed to be going to Nineveh. Well, he went completely 180 degrees opposite and bought a a ticket on a ship going to Tarshish. And so he's on the ship and they're out at sea and God begins to intervene. God sends a tremendous storm, and the sea becomes tempestuous, and the waves are dashing, and they're coming into the boat, and they begin to do everything they can to save the ship. They throw the cargo off to lighten the load. They begin to pump the water out. They're thinking about the little boat, the dinghy that's behind them, that they put some of the people in it to be saved, and so on. And In the middle of the storm, the captain says, everybody, no matter who you worship, obviously these are people of different religions, he says, you pray to your God that he might see fit to spare us. And everybody's praying to his God. And here's Jonah, though. He's not praying. He's down in the hold of the ship somewhere on a cot, and he's asleep. And the other sailors and the captain take note of it. What are you sleeping for? We're about to die. And he says, well, I can't talk to my God, 
because I have disobeyed him. He told me to go to Nineveh, and I'm going the opposite direction. I know I've done wrong. Well, they go up on deck. Apparently, they hold another little consultation, and then they decide, we're going to draw straws. We're going to cast lots, as the Bible calls it. And Jonah got the short straw. He was the one who it was determined that he was the cause of the problem. And they came to him, apparently still trying to reason with him. But Jonah was steadfast. He said finally to them, look, the only way you can save this ship in your lives is cast me overboard. You can let me die. And if you do that, the storm will abate and you will be saved. And so finally, in desperation, they took him up on his word. And they threw him over the side of the ship into the water. The storm ceased. The water became calm. And God, it says here, had prepared. Look in verse 17 of chapter 1. This is not an ordinary fish. This is not a great white that just happened to be there. This is a specific fish that God had prepared. The scripture says it very clearly. And the fish swallowed up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. And then after three days and three nights, verse 10 of chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. You've heard that story. Now, two or three things I would remind you. This entire account really is a metaphor of salvation by grace. Sue sung that wonderful song for us a few moments ago. Marvelous grace, 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 marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all of our sins. This is a story from the Old Testament of God's amazing grace. Now, in this metaphor, here's the way it would work out, and I'll go very quickly through it. The ship represented the world. That was the world of people that were the only people that were there. So the ship represents the world. The sailors represent all of humanity. The ship is perishing under the wrath of God. The judgment of God is upon that world, that ship. And the people on board are trying desperately to do everything they can to save themselves. But they're not being very effective. Things keep getting worse and worse. Just like the ship that we're riding, planet Earth today, People are doing everything they can to save it, and we're not being very effective in saving the planet, saving the ship, are we? Jonah was, after they threw him overboard, a dead man. I mean, he was dead to the world. He was dead to the sailors around him. He was dead to everybody and swallowed up by that whale. I don't know if they saw it or not, but if they saw him swallowed, they thought, there he goes. We're so sorry But he is a goner for sure. Not only will he drown, but he'll be eaten up. And yet God miraculously rescued him and delivered him. Now, let me ask you a question today. Do you really, really believe the Bible like I preach to you Sunday after Sunday and year after year? Do you believe in the inerrancy, the absolute integrity of the Bible? You know what? This is one of the most contested passages in all the Bible, probably more contested than any other passage with the possible exception of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
And so most of the world don't believe this. Now, they, if they believe it at all, they believe it as being symbolic or a metaphor or a, a, a nice story that illustrates a point. Now, this passage of Scripture right here will test you whether you truly believe the Bible to be the Word of God, an inerrant, infallible book of truth or not, probably as much as any book in all the, or any passage in all the Bible. Now, just keep your finger there because we're going to use our Bible, but go to the book of Matthew with me, and let's see what Jesus said about it. Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to read Matthew 12, two verses here where the Lord Jesus Christ spoke about this very story account that I've read to you today. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. Jesus himself said it, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is a prophecy. He is comparing the fact that he's going to die and be buried for three days. He's comparing that with the story, the account of Jonah. Just like Jonah, he's not saying this is a myth. He's using this as a comparison. This is not a metaphor. It's a parallel. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, so the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself, and sadly, nobody's repenting. The men of Nineveh were so touched by what had happened in the life of Jonah that when Jonah preached to them later on, they repented of their sins, and the whole city came to salvation and to repentance. So this book tests whether or not you literally believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture. Is this a divinely inspired book, or is this a book given to us by men that are fallible and can make mistakes? I, for one, believe this with all my heart. Hey, I believe the story that the whales swallowed Jonah. I believe that he was there for three days and that the whale burped him out and that he walked out of there with seaweed hanging over his ear and he didn't smell very good, but he was a powerful preacher from then on. He, he was a believer then, was he? Not for sure. And you know what? I believe the story so much so that if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd believe that too because I know God is going to always tell me the truth. God cannot lie. And I know that if God could create the whole world, then why would it be a problem for the Lord to, to create a whale that could swallow a man? Amen? So having settled that today, we won't spend any more time there. I have about three points I want you to get with me. Number one, I want you to go back to that little text in verse 10. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.10. Salvation is of the Lord. That's, the that's point number one. And that's the text too, ladies and gentlemen. Salvation is of the Lord. 
The Bible says that in another place. We will not turn there, but you may want to mark it in your margin of your Bible. Psalm chapter 3 and verse number 8, salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Charles Spurgeon had an interesting comment, the great English preacher. He said, Jonah learned this bit of theology in a strange seminary. Well, that, he was in the belly of the whale seminary. That's where he learned that salvation is of the Lord. Jonah in the belly of that great fish. And there was absolutely nothing, nothing, nothing that he could do to save himself. He's down there walking around. In fact, we just, he describes it. Look down in verse number five. In the belly of the whale, he said, the water can pass me. I'm sure it must have been up to his neck the whole time. It came up even to my soul, he said. And the depth closed round about me, the ocean. And the weeds were wrapped around my head. And I went down to the bottom of the mountains, the bottom of the earth. The earth with her bars was about me. Yet, Lord, you have brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. He describes that awful ordeal. In the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. What could he do to save himself? He's a picture of a lost man. Now don't forget that. He's a picture of a lost man. What kind of man? Say it. Lost. Say it again. Lost. This is a lost man. He can take his fist and pound on the sides of the stomach of the whale, but it's not going to save him. He can do whatever he wants to do. There's nothing. He's helpless and he's hopeless. He's in the belly of that whale, and there's nothing he can do except to cry out to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, this morning it still is. From A to Z, from start to finish, from beginning to the end, salvation is of the Lord. Now, it's easy to see in this story. This is a wonderful story. And when I say story, I don't mean story like Alice in Wonderland. I should say a wonderful account, a true account of this Hebrew prophet long ago. This is a wonderful account. And it's easy to see in this account because he's in dire straits. You can't imagine a worse situation. In fact, he probably would have died instantly. It was God's miraculous supernatural preservation that kept him alive during those three days. And he's in dire straits. He's as desperate a situation as a human can be. It's easy to look at this story and see his helpless, hopeless condition. And there's only one way out for him. Sue sung about it. It was the grace of God. Here he is, a disobedient prophet. God said, go to Nineveh. He's heading the other way. He's a backslidden preacher, a backslidden prophet of God. And he is now being chastened and punished for his disobedience to the Lord. So he deserves nothing from God. God doesn't owe Jonah a breath of air. But down in the belly of the whale, God chose to show him grace and to give him mercy. I like this definition of grace. I hope you've written it in your Bible somewhere. We've heard the other definitions till I'm afraid they may be too common to impact us very greatly. 
But here's the wonderful definition of grace that I like. Grace is something we need, but we don't deserve. Grace is something needed, but not deserved. You know what Jonah needed? He needed deliverance. He needed a rescue. He needed divine favor. He needed God to go to work for him. He didn't deserve it one bit. Grace is something that we desperately need, but none of us deserve. And that's old Jonah right here in the whale. Do you ever think about your salvation? I know this morning that it's a holiday weekend. I know today that I'm addressing, for the most part, people who profess to be Christians. So I understand that. I don't know how many people in our audience today would say, I'm an unbeliever. I have never come to faith in Christ. I hope there's some people like that here today, and you're listening and you will respond. But I don't know how many are like that. I'm I'm largely preaching to a Christian audience. So why would I be preaching on the subject of Jonah, a picture of the gospel and of the grace of God? Because I want to I want you to appreciate and love the Lord. Some of you have been saved for a long time. It has become such a way of life that you don't even think in terms of the grace of God and your salvation. We, it's very easy to have a big case of taking it for granted, isn't it? And you know what? Sometimes I'm walking or I'm sitting by myself, maybe in my study, or I'm riding the bike for some exercise, or I'm driving in my car and I'm alone and I have my thoughts. And often I think this. I want to say, God, why did you save me? I wonder why did you save me? Do you ever think that? I wonder why the Lord was so good to me and poured out his grace and why God chose to save me. Because grace, by definition, is unmerited, unearned, and undeserved. And if you think you deserved to get saved, you need to go back and go through the the washeteria one more time. You just got ironed and starched. You didn't get cleaned. You see, you don't deserve salvation. You and I deserve hell. Now, not many people believe that nice clean, hardworking, moral American people brought up in church. And so because we don't see much of a need for it, we don't have a very great sense of appreciation for it. You say, I'm not, a, I, I'm not grossly immoral. I'm, I'm not out there sleeping with other people that I shouldn't be. I'm not smoking dope every night at my house. I'm not a drug dealer. I I don't do those things. I'm not involved in some sort of illicit uh, behavior. No, I don't do those things. But my friend, I'm going to tell you, you'll never be clean enough on the inside of your own effort. You will never be saved long enough. I can say that now as a man who's been saved for a long time, for decades. But I know to think the right thoughts and to keep my mind clean and to live for the Lord and to truly love him and appreciate him, to care about others like I ought to care about him and most of all to keep him foremost in my thoughts, to love him with all my heart, my soul, and my mind. I'll tell you what, it is an absolute impossibility. I catch myself on the wrong thinking track 10 times a day. 
So don't sit there and think I'm preaching to the sinners. No, I'm preaching to you. Say, say this with me right now. He's preaching to me. Okay, you got it. If you said that, you understand. He's preaching to me. Because every one of us are Jonah's in a desperate, dire straits situation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says that you are dead in trespasses and sins. That's Bill Monroe. That's you. The word death in the Bible, every time I have a funeral, I, I describe this. Death doesn't mean the end of existence. Death means separation from God. Separation. Physical death is a separation of the soul and the body. Spiritual death is separation of the soul from God. Jonah's down in the bottom of the sea, in the belly of a whale. Talk about death. Talk about separation. Separation from everything. Hopeless and helpless to do anything about it. Dead. 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 Three or four months ago, my wife went out in the garage one morning, and I was still at home. And she got in her car, and she came back in in a moment and said, Bill, my car is dead. It won't crank. So I went out there, and I tried it and didn't do any better for me. It was dead. You noticed, I noticed two or three things. I turned the key, not a sound from the from the motor, silent. I looked, all those lights that normally come on on the dashboard, it was dark. It was dead. It was silent. It was dark. For just a second, it went tick, 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 and then even the tick quit. Dead. I mean, it was dead. My daddy said, graveyard dead. That's how dead that car was. And so I said, well, I think I know what that is, and you know exactly what I did. I went and got my jumper cables. Why do we call them jumper cables? Makes no sense, but those kinds with the big clips on the ends. And I cranked up my car, and I put the cables in the proper positions, and then I had Norma get in the car and with the key, and I put the other end of those cables on the proper post, I said, okay, try it. She turned the key. Ooh, it came to life. The lights came on. That's important. It had been in darkness, and now the lights are shining. And the sound comes, the sounds of life, and the car cranks up. It had had a dead battery. You knew where I was going with that story. The car could not do anything of its own. It had no power. The power supply was dead. It required an outside source or entity to act upon it. And when I hooked it to the car with the live battery, then the energy from the other car came flowing through those cables and life came in from the outside. The car could have tried. It could have worked. It could have affirmed it's going to do better from the, in the future. Here's a little pilot SUV sitting in my driveway saying, from now on, I'm going to do better. 
but it wouldn't have mattered. It was dead, dead, dead. It required an outside force to come and act on its behalf. And when the force did, it flowed energy and life and light and sound into that car. Now, that's what salvation is. Salvation is of the Lord, meaning it requires an outside power to act upon our souls and our spirits to bring life. We are not capable of generating life inside on our own. Salvation is of the Lord. In the fourth century, there was a British monk. His name was Pelagius. Pelagius went to Rome. And he went there to visit thinking he was going to see these godly, godly people. And he looked around at the crowds of people and he went to churches and he became very disillusioned because of the immorality and the lifestyle that he saw in the lives of people who called themselves Christians and he thought they were Christians, but they lived terribly. They lived as wickedly as the people back in England that he had been ministering to in his little parish. And Pelagius became so bothered by this that he actually started what we now call a heresy, Pelagianism. And what we mean by that is Pelagius said the reason these people are living like this is because they have been taught that all people have a sinful nature, the doctrine of original sin, that we inherited this sin nature. And so when they do wrong. They claim to be Christians, but they go out and they do wrong, and, the, and they have a built-in excuse for it. They just say, well, I can't help it. I was born in sin and shaped in sin, and yes, I'm a believer in Christ, but I, I can't help it, and they have a, this excuse because of original sin. And Pelagianism became a heresy because here's what he taught. He said, you don't have a fallen nature, Pelagius said. He said, It's a matter of choice. If you choose, you can choose to stop sinning yourself. That, in other words, man is responsible, or partly responsible at least, for his salvation. Later on, he kind of modified his view. He said, well, you know, we do need Christ. We do need the sacrifice of the Lord on the cross. But at the same time, We've got to exert our own will. Salvation is a matter of making the right choices in life. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Jonah, in the belly of that whale, can make the best choices he ever wants to make from now on. But he is lost, lost, lost. Like that car battery was dead and needed power from an external source, so you and I are dead in trespasses and sins, and unless an outside force, i.e. the grace of God through Jesus Christ comes and acts upon us, we will never have life again. We'll never have life. Man cannot save himself. Now, you know that, but I want you to go back and appreciate your salvation. I'll tell you why I'm preaching this message in a moment. Number two, salvation is of the Lord. Number two, the gospel is the announcement of that good news. The gospel is the announcement of that great news. I want you to picture you're going home, and uh, 
you flip on the television, you say, I think I'll watch the news. I haven't watched it in a few days. I don't know what's happening. Got all these immigrants down on the border, and you got this stuff going on in Iraq, and you have all these various things happening in the world. I'm going to watch the news and catch up. I want to be informed. I'm going to watch the news. Do you know what the definition of the news is? If you go to the dictionary, it's something like this. The news that we watch on our television sets or read in our papers is the announcement of events that have actually happened. That's the definition. When you watch the news, you're watching an announcement of events that have actually happened somewhere in the world. Now think about that. Important. The gospel is the announcement of events. It's the good news. It's the announcement of wonderful events that have occurred in the world that actually have happened. And so, picture, you're sitting in your easy chair there, and you flip on your television, and you watch, and it's Fox News or CNN or whatever you watch. And here's the, the, the promo come on for the news, and here sits this man and this woman usually at a desk, and a nice-looking fellow in a suit, and he's tying a nice-looking lady here. And they come on, and they make an announcement. We have breaking news this morning, ladies and gentlemen. God has made a way to escape separation from him in hell. He reportedly has sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins by dying in our place and rising from the grave. Ladies and gentlemen, if this report is true, it would mean that Jesus has satisfied God's righteous demand that our sins be punished and that God has provided a basis for anyone who signs up for this new program to have a relationship with him. That's what the gospel is. It's an announcement of events that have actually happened, only it's good news instead of Iraq and all the other problems of the world. Now listen to me. Salvation is of the Lord. I'm making an announcement. This is not Bill O'Reilly, but Bill Monroe. And what I'm saying is more important than anything O'Reilly's ever going to tell you. Salvation is of the Lord. That Jesus Christ has come and paid for the sins of the universe. He's paid for the sins of the world. And I'm here to announce what God has done for you, not what you can do for God, because you can't do anything for him to assist in your salvation. That's why we gathered this morning. We gathered to celebrate that good news that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins. Amen? Amen. Now, it ought to be a celebration. Some of you come looking like you're going to a funeral, and I don't want to put you down, but my soul, we're here to celebrate the good news. That's why we're here. We're here to praise the Lord. I I don't want to be too personal and too ugly, but you know what? If you got a hold of this, you'd shut that cell phone off, and you wouldn't be texting when I'm preaching, because I'm making the most important announcement in the whole world. How self-absorbed that we can't stop for a few minutes on Sunday and praise the Lord and celebrate what Jesus Christ has done and the good news that would change the world if they would only believe it and hear it and listen to it. 
We are so self-absorbed, we can't even come and stop and really celebrate the best thing that ever happened in all of human history. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? He said, Nick, you've come out here tonight to see me, and you're the most religious man, the most moral man, the best man that I can think of in Israel. You have a seat on the Sanhedrin. You're a rabbi. You're a religious teacher, but you must be born again. Whoa. You have come up short, Nicodemus. Well, what does it mean, good master, to be born again? Jesus said, I'll tell you what it means. Just like a baby is born physically, you have to be born spiritually. Do you mean I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born? That's impossible, Lord. Sure, that's impossible. I'm talking on the spiritual level, Nicodemus. But Jesus didn't say born again. That's the English version. What Jesus said is you have to be regenerated, the Greek word, which means you have to get life from above. Your spiritual battery's dead. You have to get connected to God's power source through the gospel. And when you do, He will breathe new life into you, and you will be saved, forgiven. Jesus didn't say, Nicodemus, you've got to try harder. Nicodemus, you've got to clean up your act. Nicodemus, you've got to change your thinking processes. I want you to read a few good new books here. Nicodemus, you've got to set some goals. None of that. You are dead, even though you're a good, moral, religious man, and you've got to get connected to divine energy that comes through the gospel that can change and transform you that was purchased by the blood of Christ. Or Nicodemus, you'll be unsaved. Let me tell you something. That's why I preach these messages. That's why I give the invitation every Sunday. Dead men don't need to be encouraged. Dead men don't need information. Dead men don't need advice. Dead men need life. And life comes through the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. I read a wonderful book the last few days, or I'm reading it, I'm still reading it. It's called Christless Christianity. And the book opens with a statement like this, quote, Our churches have become so obsessed with being relevant, practical, helpful, successful, well-liked, and accepted that we now mirror the world around us, producing a distorted view of Christianity. I recently read where a pastor said my church gave me a seven-week sabbatical. My wife and I got in our SUV, and we began to travel. We went from Florida to we went to New York and New England. He said we went to Texas. We went to large churches, and we went to little small churches. We went to churches of every denomination. 
We went to Arminian churches and we went to Calvinistic churches. We went to everything you could imagine because I just tried to get a flavor for religion. Where, what's the state of Christianity in America? And we tried all kinds. Catholic, charismatic, Pentecostal, Baptist, evangelical, whatever you want to name. We just had a sampling. We had seven weeks and we went to church over and over and I made notes. He said, in seven weeks, I went to one church that gave an invitation. In seven weeks, I heard a clear presentation of the gospel once. We're taking this for granted. We're taking it for granted. Listen to me, folks. Christianity is not a self-help program. We don't sing here, I'll get by with a little help from my friends. That's not one of the songs on our list. Christianity is, Jesus is not our life coach. He's not going to give us advice on how to be more successful if we use the principles of the Bible. That's not the heart message of Christianity. Christianity is not about how good people can leave feeling better or even how they can leave being better. Christianity, it's not about self-absorbed people getting their felt needs met. It's not about what would Jesus do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about what the price that he paid so he could act in grace and mercy to us. And Jonah's a powerful illustration of that. Helpless, hopeless, dying in the bottom of the belly of a fish down in the depths, fathoms deep into the water. But there was one thing Jonah could do, and I close. It's in chapter 2 and verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord out of the ship's belly. He couldn't do one other thing for his salvation, but he could do one thing. He could believe, couldn't he? He could believe. And he cried out to God down in that ship's belly. Look with me down in verse 7, if you will. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. Nothing I can do. And he said, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came up to him into his holy temple. And I realized salvation is of the Lord. The only thing we can do to, to be saved is we can cry to the Lord and trust his grace, and we can believe in him with all of our hearts. You remember the story of Acts 16? And the jail had had an earthquake, and it was falling down. In those days, under Roman law, if a prisoner escaped, then the jailer in charge would have to forfeit his life to pay for that escapee. And so the prisoners are breaking loose. The jail is broken open. And Paul and Silas are singing praises to God because they're still excited about their salvation. And the jailer comes running in knowing that he's in grave danger of losing his own life now. And he said, what must I do to be saved? You remember what Paul said? Believe. Believe. He didn't tell him one other thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe. Trust him 
rest upon him. Believe that he will give you his grace as he has promised. Believe, Mr. Jailer. Believe. You say, well, what about repentance? I promise you, he had already repented. He didn't need to talk about that. That man had, was deeply repented, I promise you. And today I say to you, you may be a member of this church or you may not be, I don't know, but I felt so strongly impressed over the last days about this subject to just hold up the Lord Jesus Christ and preach the gospel and remind you again what it is that we ought to be excited about, to break out of our preoccupation with the things of this life and our self-absorption and to come here and celebrate the fact that God has provided a means of escape for every one of us who will come to him. I preach this today because in the last few weeks, several circumstances that I've encountered, people that I've talked to, books that I've read, things that have come to my attention through other ministers and so on, I've become very aware of the very high percentage of people in our churches who think that they have a part in their salvation. Let me say it again. I become very aware of the number of people who come to churches, even like ours, as much as we're a gospel-saturated church, and they think that they somehow have some part in their salvation. And so the message today was to get you to remember salvation is of the Lord. You're not saved because you raised your hand. You weren't saved because you walked the aisle, made a profession. You're not saved because you prayed a prayer. One day that somebody went through the plan of salvation and said, now if you want to be saved, pray this prayer. And you prayed it. And in many cases, nothing happened. In some cases, people were wonderfully saved. You're not saved today because you're baptized. You're not saved today because you live a very good moral life, perhaps as good and clean a life as anybody in the building. All of that won't save you. Jonah was all of those things. He was temporarily a backslidden prophet, but he was a good man. He was God's man. And he found himself in a place where he could not be saved by his own effort, picturing for us our salvation. And so today, I want you to go back to when you were saved. Is that what you trusted in? Is your trust purely, simply, only, completely, fully, totally in the gospel alone, not one thing that you have done? Or is it in the gospel plus something like Pelagius taught? We don't, the gospel is not about the Lord coming and dying and then us helping him out a little bit. The gospel means nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Acts chapter 20 says the preacher is responsible for the souls of his congregation. I want to just drive that point home because that's the basis of assurance. 
That's the basis of you having peace in your heart, that you're not trusting in what you've done. If you play any part in your salvation, you're going to always wonder, well, have I done enough? Was I sincere? You're always going to be plagued with doubt. We have people here make a profession two or three times because they lack assurance. Remember, it's not you doing it right. It's what God did for you and you simply simply accepting it. I want you to understand that. I want you to know that more than I want you to know anything else because your soul is at stake on that. Would you bow your head with me at this time?